everybody. It's SBO Perspectives, another week of school business official perspectives for you. I'm Jack Mitchell and I'm John Bricado. Looking forward to giving you some really great content today. For the folks out there who don't know, um, I know a lot of stuff. Many times when we have these podcasts, we're out here, you know, whether it's downstate or Long Island, folks may not be really aware of companies or vendors that we associate with. I mean, but like anything else, this company does does span across not just here you know in our area but but outside other areas as well and so with that i just want to kind of just give a proper introduction for glenn i wanted to say that glenn Nishwinder is the founder and ceo of Science consultants and that's a full service multidisciplinary environmental health and occupational safety consulting firm um they've got over 25 plus years of experience you know that's integrating science engineering investigative methodologies to provide really trusted environmental solutions. Notably, I wanted to say that Glenn, he really brings like an extensive education, K through 12 experience, and that's why we got him on. You know, he really helps manage the concerns and expectations of, you know, school districts, stakeholders, and he carefully guides them you know, to community engagement. So he is a licensed professional geologist in the state of New York, Tennessee, and also a resident of West Sable. And here's our interview with Glenn Neuschwender of EnviroScience Consultants. Today we have Glenn Neuschwender of EnviroScience Consultants. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Oh, great to be with you guys. I'm doing very well. I'm super happy for your success with this podcast. I was telling Jack, 30 episodes, that's amazing. It's gaining a lot of traction and I'm glad to be a small part of it. It's been really kind of taking off lately, and it seems every episode people are gaining more and more interest. So, you know, we're we're excited to have you on and to have all of our listeners kind of just get some exposure to you and your company and what you have to offer. So with that, Glenn, again, we're glad to have you on. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Well, we'll we'll get rolling. I'm curious because I've met you several times, different events, as we just know, we spoke about the cornhole last month. When when did you start your company and and, and why did you decide to do so? Sure thing. So uh, I started EnviroScience in uh, 1998. I had previously been a partner in a smaller local firm since uh, 1989. And when that firm was sold to a larger public company, I decided to start EnviroScience. My interest in starting it was was strongly tied to the desire to provide the, the public education space with solutions that were, were tailored, if you will, to their specific needs. And uh, I, I knew there was a way to provide those solutions both, both you know, kind of cost effectively as well as comprehensively. I was, was fortunate to maintain my previous education relationships from my previous firm and, and to work with coworkers who shared that same solution-based vision that I had. And so... You know, Jack kind of gave an introduction to you and the company, but could you maybe walk us through a few examples of some regular business that you conduct with school districts? Sure. So we, we consult primarily in two ways. One is regulatory compliance and, and in also addressing environmental health and safety concerns. So for instance, on the one hand, there's a, there's a myriad of environmental regulations that impact public schools, things like addressing asbestos or lead, PCBs, underground storage tanks, workplace safety and construction standards, things like that. These regulations are issued by federal, state, and county agencies, and they all have their own unique requirements. And so navigating these regulations and remaining compliant can be daunting, even for, for the most seasoned director of facilities or school business official. So we, we hope to provide the necessary level of expertise and, and support to assist districts in remaining up to date in these areas of inspection, testing, design, and training, to name a few. 
But the other side is that from time to time, school districts can be presented with you know, challenges in responding to environmental concerns. And these can be brought by stakeholders like parents or, or teachers. Sometimes these, these concerns can be on a very small scale, maybe like a classroom that's suspected of having an indoor air quality issue. But other times, these, these concerns can be on a building-wide scale, like the impact of having uh, of activities, let's say, of an adjacent property or a past use of a school property on the health of building occupants. I love those types of, of projects. They're rewarding and addressing and supporting the needs of the school district. It's often very challenging and unique, and it can often be presented in an environment that's filled with, with emotion. You know, our objective is to remain objective. We develop strategies rooted in environmental compliance. We try to stay as unbiased and follow these science-based you know, paths of, of inquiry so that we can present our findings in a manner that speaks to the concerns of those raising those issues, as well as the scrutiny that maybe regulatory agencies might give our findings. So are you finding your company involved with a lot of school districts as they relate to capital projects with like seeker and asbestos testing and sampling of different sorts? Absolutely. So in, as you may be aware, back in 98, New York State passed a, a regulation referred to as, as rescue. Mm-hmm. It was a law actually entitled to you know, rebuild schools to uphold education. It required things like annual visual inspections and, and building condition surveys. But it also required that all capital project plans submitted to Albany for approval be accompanied by relevant asbestos, lead paint, and PCB assessments. And so that forms a big part of what we do for schools is that pre-construction testing and then the follow-up monitoring of of dealing with those hazards. Yeah, that's really crucial. I got to tell you, because um, not that I've experienced it, but I have heard stories that if you don't, you know, put the secret in and you don't have that face, like that could really derail your whole project and the potential aid behind it. So it's, it's important that, you know, that schools do, do link up with you and have those things in order. I, I'm curious though, over time, since 1998, it's been a while ago, what changes have you seen, I guess, in the environmental industry over the years as they may have related to schools? Oh, sure. Well, that's a great question. You know, I wouldn't say that there have been so many, as much changes in regulations as there have been in the number of regulations impacting schools. You know, when I started way back in 89, there were mainly some broad reaching rules about asbestos and and maybe storage tanks, Mm -hmm. maybe a cursory kind of recognition of the hazards of things like uh, lead and paint or lead and water. It seems like everything we do now has some kind of regulation or some kind of stipulation tied to it, right, Jack? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's like you can't even tie your shoes without having to file a form with the state. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, like in in 1995, the EPA passed their, they started their Tools for Schools Indoor Air Quality Initiative, recognizing the importance of, of improved air quality on the health of students and staff. I mentioned earlier, you know, in 98, New York State passed uh, the Rescue Act. In 2016, we also in New York State passed regulations requiring, requiring lead and water testing right. in public yep. schools. Now, I think at this time, there's probably four or five bills working their way through the legislature that address other drinking water pollutants or indoor air quality pollutants, environmental contaminants in schools. Certainly, post-COVID, ventilation standards are being considered. So, you know, our society has really become laser focused on improving the educational experience for all mm-hmm. students and staff. And I think environmental safety 
you know, is a big part of that strategy. How are you seeing school districts respond to this in more of a, a practical sense? Because I think the three of us can agree that these regulations and that these rules coming out are for the right reasons. But when you actually have boots on the ground trying to get this done, trying to fund it, are you seeing a gap between what the intention is and the, the execution? And is there any kind of difficulties faced by school districts just kind of in a broad sense? Well, like I said, you know, there's a multitude of issues confronting schools on the environmental front. You know, compliance can be overwhelming. And it's really important to develop competent, cost-effective solutions in, in, in supporting the compliance uh, component. You know, obviously, we need to put a heavy eye towards occupant health. Now, it's very likely that Board of Education meetings are going to always have a remote component to them. And I think that's going to increase resident participation and input. And of course, I think that's a good thing, but it's probably going to place more scrutiny than ever on the on the operation of school facilities. Okay. So I think as administrators and as consultants, we must, you know, find a way to be prepared to answer those, those concerns. You know, I think in the past, school facilities might have been a easy target for cuts in the budgeting process. You know, I, I think that mechanical systems in the future, probably since post-COVID, are going to be more managed through digital control to improve indoor environments and the health okay. of uh, school building occupants. You know, these controls can, in the future, can take account for things like you know, humidity and ventilation rates, dew point, you know, the variable occupancy of spaces instead of a traditional kind of one-size you know, mm-hmm. fits-all approach. You know, and if we do this, it'll it'll make us more agile, I think, in responding to things like pandemics on a larger scale, while improving uh, the overall environment for students with allergies and asthma and other respiratory related issues. Well, Glenn, I think you make a great point because I think maybe the facilities budget could have been an easy target to kind of trim the budget a little bit, but now that we're in a COVID slash post-COVID environment, I would say that that would be maybe last on the list or close to last on the list for any kind of budget cuts. Because I know last year when we were getting ready to open schools, we were upgrading our filtration systems to the maximum amount that they could. And we were increasing the amount of sanitation stations throughout the district. So all of that had to come out of the facilities budget. So I'd be surprised if in the near future, we see any change to kind of some reduction in a facilities budget. I agree. You know, the, the converse of that, of course, is that we have to resist, you know, trying to oversatisfy our constituents, especially with technologies that are, you know, unproven or ineffective or, you know, addressing concerns that haven't been properly, you know, vetted, let's say, unbiasedly. You know, I, I, we refer to Google University all the time as a powerful tool in, you know, uncovering these unique and untested strategies like we saw in the early stages of the pandemic. You know, I, an example of t- me that impacts the consulting that we do is the use of desk shields. You know, there's an obvious intended purpose for the use of them, but there were a number of unintended consequences, like the stresses on custodial staff resources in in cleaning those shields or its impact on the proper ventilation of the space. Mm -hmm. You know, these decisions really should be made in totality with regards to their impact on both the indoor environment and the entire educational experience. So, you know, we got to find a balance really between how we expend our resources. Wow, I got to say, how do you keep up with all this? I mean, like you must have a huge staff because I'm thinking like all the things you mentioned and you didn't even mention the floor. The floors were a big issue a couple of years ago with the mercury, too. I mean, how do you, you just I'm curious, how do you manage that? 
Well, that's a great question. And, and, you know, it does speak to our need to cross train and to stay in the front of yeah. things. You mentioned mercury and flooring. You know, we've always had to deal with mercury science labs, you know, thermometers would break and there'd be spills and, you know, maybe uh, in nurse's office, we'd have issues like that. But then all of a sudden to, to find it in these flooring materials on such a wide, you know, in, in such a wide area mm-hmm. meant that we had to adapt what we had been doing on a much smaller scale to, to this larger issue. So yeah, we have a staff of diversified, you know, industrial hygienists and scientists and, and professionals that have a broad range of skills. And from time to time, we pull the right arrow out of the quiver and, and we address our clients needs. Good stuff. Well, it looks like we're, we've hit a lot of points here, I guess, in wrapping up, we, we always like to open it up for whether it be an SBO or a vendor to just kind of give any kind of advice or recommendation, you know, regarding, I guess, the future of environmental space and, or just anything maybe in particular you might want to add. Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for, for having me. This has been a great experience. You know, there's so many things that we can talk about, about moving forward would probably take up three podcasts, but I would say, you know, I'd, I'd hope to see maybe a more equitable distribution of, of the resources that address, you know, today's environmental needs in schools, you know, on a, on an economic basis, you know, equally as important, you know, is the proper allocation of those resources so that they benefit as many students as possible. You know, mm. it's never just enough to throw money at a problem, but it's, it's the proper use of those resources that brings, you know, I think a rising tide and lifting all boats. You know, I, I hope that legislators in the future really seek the input of people like yourselves, you know, educational leaders and consultants in developing, you know, future environmental regulations. You know, often these myopic constituents with special interests don't always really serve the needs of our current educational situations. And I think, you know, proactive, effective approaches are probably more valuable than, than reflexive, politically expedient ones. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, Glenn, now that, you know, districts have been doing capital projects for years and years and years, and I'm just speaking from my personal experience, having managed a few of them, in your experience, is asbestos becoming less and less of a problem as these capital projects continue? Because I know at a prior district, I just felt like every time we touched a wall, every time we opened a floor up or something like that, it was asbestos after asbestos. So we we have our HERA manuals, obviously, that, that alert us to that. But, you know, some of our buildings were so old and the, the records weren't as current as we had liked them. So, you know, everything would have to come to a screeching halt. We'd have to get everything tested and, and the like. So are you seeing now that maybe districts have been going through a few phases of capital projects? Is, is asbestos in general becoming less and less of an issue when it comes to capital work? I, I wouldn't say less and less. Obviously, when you remove asbestos, it doesn't grow back. So right. that issue in that space moving forward is, is never going to be an asbestos issue. You know, again, if, if the investigation has been proper and thorough, but that said, what really has happened is there's been a move from the very hazardous, very friable materials in the 1990s and two thousands to managing the non-friable materials that represent less of a health risk in place. And the, the classic example is, is floor tiles. There are many districts still that, maintain asbestos containing floor tiles in in good condition and only really need to address them, like you said, in in a capital project phase. So if you're going to repurpose a space or you're going to, you know, change the flooring, uh, and then you're going to obviously be disturbing those tiles and it needs to be handled in a regulated way. But as a variation of Mark 
Twain's famous line that the reports of asbestos' demise are greatly exaggerated in that there are very few buildings that I can think of that are clients of ours that do not have any asbestos. It's a, it's a goal, but it, they're still some ways away. And many, many more still have a whole bunch of those materials in their buildings that we inspect for every six months. And for our newer business officials, kind of generally, what years was asbestos used? And so when you look at the age of your building, you may have a sense of there's probably most likely going to be asbestos containing materials in it. Well, when I started, I used to say from the turn of the century, but I don't want to confuse people. That would be the turn of the <laughs> 20th century, not the 21st century, right up through the 1980s. And, and believe it or not, there are still some materials that contain asbestos because their use has not been perfected to, to an equitable substitute. But for the most part, by the 1990s, the use of asbestos, certainly in schools, was discontinued. Got it. Okay. So any new construction after then, it's somewhat safe to assume that asbestos wasn't used. Yes, but you're required to have an adhere inspection performed at least initially on any new construction, even if it means identifying that the building is now asbestos free. So Glenn, I mean, we, you know, something we didn't touch about is mold. Mold is such a really, I mean, that's something that creeps up. It seems like you might smell it, but sometimes you can't. How do you, how do you guys really identify that? Like what situations with schools do you come in and help remediate a situation with mold? Sure, with regards to mold, it's more about the extent of the issue than it is necessarily about the types of the molds that might be present. And, and sometimes people can go astray with being obsessed over a particular, you know, the black mold or the white mold, or the green mold and things like that. It, it really has to do with, is this something that could be handled uh, internally by custodial staff or is it something on a much larger scale? Mm-hmm. And also equally as important is what are the underlying conditions that created that that mold amplification, if you will. And often this time of year, we're seeing the high humidity, uh, like we've had this summer. We've seen some storm damage and flooding and water impacting spaces where where it doesn't necessarily belong. And so we've got equipment malfunction with regards to centralized air conditioning, chillers over over, uh, or underworking, things like that, that can create moisture in environments that then can lead to an amplification. You know, mold is ubiquitous. It's all around us. It's just that when we see it in concentrations that are above normal, then we need to deal with it. So those strategies, like I said, are often going to be based on the scale of the issue and whether or not they're going to be handled locally by your custodial and maintenance staff or whether you need to bring in trained uh, professionals. Got it. That's and his, his, uh, Sorry, has Hurricane Ida really kind of exacerbated the mold issue in the state in the lower portion of New York State? Yeah, not so much on the island, but we've had some significant issues in, in Westchester, Putnam, and Rockland. You know, there were actually a few school buildings that had to be closed because of uh, flooding in those areas. But it's climatically, we've just had one of those summers very similar to what we had in 2018, if you'll recall, when it was all the rage to talk about closing school buildings, uh, especially right prior to the opening because of the mold issues. So it's that climatic condition that we've been dealing with again this, this summer mm-hmm. that has led to these issues. I think I read that uh, Rye School District had to delay their opening to September 13th because they're, they were flooded so badly and their infrastructure was affected. Yeah, you've got a high school up there as well in, I believe, New Rochelle. And also, if I'm not mistaken, Fort Chester also had a, a building. So yeah, it's a real thing. I would just say that, you know, when we think about these topics that you put together and, and the folks we have on, everything is pertinent to us as school business officials. As, as you can see, there's such a, a really wide array 
of different issues we face. And this is, of course, coming to the forefront now. And even, even so, we're probably going to even talk about uh, some of the waste management companies that come on too, because like, you know, even recently you see how we're climate change, right? We want to go green. We should go green. Hopefully, you know, administration up in higher parts helps us get there. But, you know, the, the biggest thing here is that when, when, when you're dealing with issues in schools, you have to have partnerships. And again, that's why we, we great that you come on and make this aware for, for our peers so they can go out and reach out to, if not you, but someone in their area to help them address these things. Glenn, thank you so much for, for you. your time today. We, we truly appreciate it. And Jack, I, I know you feel this way. Every episode gets more and more interesting as we have kind of different walks of life from, from yeah. public education. We still learn too. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Glenn. Great to be with you. Thanks, guys. Have a yeah, great day. Thanks, Glenn. Okay. Take care. And that was our interview with Glenn Neuschwender of Enviro Science Consultants. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This has been another uh, information-packed episode. It seems like every episode that we have just keeps getting better and better. And the info that we're hopefully bringing to you guys is really useful. And you're, you're gleaning something from these episodes. Absolutely. I got to say that I just never could fathom, you know, how we've grown, how we've expanded, you know, John, and just each episode, just each topic, you know, and with that, more in tune. So thank you again for joining us and we look forward. Jack Mitchell, along with John Bricado, signing off. SPL Perspectives. See you next time. Thanks, week. everyone.